Hailing frequencies are open. Hello there, faithful Hello. viewer, and welcome to our very first episode, our pilot, if you will, of the Hit or Miss Star Trek podcast. Uh, if you're joining us, you've presumably either seen the trailer that's been doing the rounds or you've joined our YouTube channel or Twitter page already. Uh, but basically, in case you haven't, this being our first episode, I'm going to go over the form that it will take. Uh, but first of all, I couldn't do this on my own. I've had to introduce a guest. Uh, and it's a very uh, a special guest, a friend of mine for well over two decades now. Uh, two, over 20 years of talking Star Trek. And uh, yeah, so, uh, my friend, Stephen Brown, or Brunny as I know him. Hello, Brunny. Oh, God. Hello, Miss. Hello, Miss. Thank you for the invite. That was 20 years, oh my God. I know, right? <laughs> all those years and all those terrible in-jokes about uh, don't come between me and the blood wine and various bits like that. That was going to be my sign-off. You've stolen it already. <laughs> oh. oh, I'm so sorry. I could always edit that out. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so just for, you, for your sake and for the sake of the viewers, as this is the first episode, uh, there's a few different sections that we're going to break this into. We're hopefully going to get it well under an hour 15 to an hour and a half. Uh, the sections will be basically uh, getting to know you, a hit or miss section in which I'm basically going to throw, uh, it'll be five things because it's a two-part episode we're reviewing, so five things from anywhere in the world of Star Trek and ask if you think they're a hit or a miss. Uh, and, you know, we're not saying anything's, you know, diabolical or an abomination to canon or anything, just some things miss with you on a personal level and some things, re uh, you know, might react differently. So we'll take that from there. Then the actual episode review, uh, we'll get into the bulk of it, then... Gene's vision section, which is how the episode fits into the ideology of Trek. Uh, we'll give our conclusion and score. Then we'll have some audience interaction, and that should wrap things up, hopefully in time. Uh, so, without any further ado, I'll uh, just segue us straight into section one, which is the section that I call Hailing Frequencies Open. <laughs> so, uh, and this basically is just a getting to know you thing. So um, it occurs to me that I've known you all those years. We've watched a lot of Trek together. We've talked about episodes as they've aired. And yet, I've never actually asked you this before. But what got you first interested in Star Trek? And what was the first thing you watched that kind of hooked you in? I think, if anything, probably circumstance. Um, right. <laughs> and catching it the right time on television. For me, it was always 6 o'clock, BBC Two. Right. There was some sci-fi on. And... Mm. One of the first sci-fis was TNG, Next Generation. Mm. So yeah. you know, having me dinner with my parents, things like that, and you know, being you're know, forced to do the dishes was me as my <laughs> my chores. And uh, you know, pop the TV on six o'clock, get me sci-fi on, get some Star Trek. And that's probably the introduction, really. And then yeah, yeah. next gen from there. Cool. Uh, do you have a favourite series? Is it Next Gen? Because that was kind of the first one that uh, oh. you were drawn to. Ooh, that is a tough one. It's been a while yeah. since I've watched them. I happen to have actually been watching them all recently, and I'm, I'm just going through Next Gen at the moment. Yeah. I think some of my fondest memories would probably be DS9. Right. I so don't know why. Yeah. Maybe just the Space Battles, because Space Battles <laughs> amazing. Yeah. Too. 
Definitely. Yeah. Well, we wanted to see uh, all the HD footage of it. We'll never probably get until they release them on Blu-ray, but we'll wait and see. But uh, yeah, no, that's fine. So DS9 uh, as your sort of number one is interesting, and I think it's something you'll share with a lot of people, to be honest. Um, yeah, I mean, that's it. I, I mean, every series has its own special place. Oh, of course, um, yeah. But I think there were certainly some episodes I enjoyed more in DS9. But certainly just re-watching them, i say, The Next Generation recently. There's great episodes I've completely forgotten about. That's weird, but fair enough. Okay. Um, and not to put you on the spot, but if you had to pick, say, three episodes that you think represented the best of Star Trek or the best for, for you that you've really loved more than any three across any of the series, what do you think they would be? Oh, God. Um, if you don't go with all good things, then yeah. <laughs> fair oh, enough. Uh, okay. That, that's just great. Um, I suppose Best of Wolf Wills won all the awards and things like that, so that's always a yeah. good one to get people introduced. Mm-hmm. Um, third one, ooh, don't know, don't know. Ah, there we go, Trials and Tribulations. Ah, I just love triples. <laughs> that way you're getting uh, DS9 and TOS in there, <laughs> two exactly. for the price of one. Yeah. That's cool. Well, just uh, that was just a little bit of getting to know you just for the viewers and stuff, and it's educated me a little bit as well, so there you go. Um, so we'll move on into the next section, which is the possibly soon-to-be infamous hit-or-miss section. Uh, and oh. as I said, because we're doing a two-part episode, we're just going to do five things uh, this week where I'll just... Uh, Shoot them out, and then you'll tell me whether you think they're a hit or a miss, and a little bit of reasoning why. And then I'll mm. give uh, give my thoughts as well after yours, uh, and whether I agree or disagree. Um, sure. I haven't given you anything in advance because that will be the way we do this, just so that the the listeners and everything know um, it will truly be on the fly. Because I I this is the first time you're hearing any of the things I'm putting to you. So you're building uh, this up here. Yeah? I'm getting stressed. Come on. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I'll jump straight in, in that case, before we get any more nervous, and I'll say that, uh, I don't know why I picked these, by the way, they're just completely random, but number one on my list that I made up for this is uh, Hit or Miss Jadzia Dax. Yeah, hit. Hit. And uh, what? Do, why especially do you think where the character is a hit? Well-rounded character. Um, obviously, on that day, the trains the trill. Mm. Um for DS9, because you see them in Next Gen, and they are very different in there. Um, mm. I don't know if that was ever explained in canon, actually. Not really, an no. Interesting one. But yeah, no, good character. Uh, fitting well. The actress was obviously very pleasing to look at, so that never hurts. Fair enough. And uh, yeah, I would agree with you. I think Jadzia Dax was a hit. It was good to have that... Um... The level of acceptance of knowing somebody, I think, through all those lives and stuff. So her relationship with Cisco was kind of really sweet in that regard. Uh, the fact that she was multi-layered because of all the lives, so she had the Klingon culture thing and mm. uh, and all that yeah. as well. Uh, you know, plus a friendship with Kira and a bit of an a will they, won't they with Doctor Bashir. Um, you know, so every kind of crew member had something to do, but the character I think was strong and. Uh, you know, not to be cliche, but strong and independent and stood up for herself as well. And uh, I think Terry Farrell was a great actress, so I would yeah. say hit as well. <laughs> it's good how it developed in there over, over the years, definitely. I think that's the same with any of them. Uh, just how the characters develop and you grew to love them and, and things like that. Oh, completely, yeah. It's a shame that she was killed off because of all the controversial reasons and stuff. But I do like Esri, but it is a shame we didn't get to finish the series with uh, the original Jadzia Ducks. Yeah, this is true. Anyway, uh, we'll move to uh, number two. Then in number two on the section, hit or miss section 31. 
Ooh. <laughs> now we're talking, what I would say, the core three, section 31, because obviously you've got um, Discovery in, in section 31 there, and that's a completely different ball game. But the whole, the slowing side of it, I suppose they did touch a bit with it in Enterprise and early section 31 there. Did it? Yeah, slowing and, and all that sort of intrigue with Bashir. Yeah, good. Good. Okay. Uh, it's always one of those things like, oh, really curious exactly. You'd like to know more about mm. exactly what they're interfering with in the background and stuff like that, but uh, it never quite gives you that much information. Well, it it did eventually with uh, Discovery and stuff, I think, but that's the thing. It was kind of um, regarding yeah. Section 31 as a whole because you're going through DS9, Enterprise, Discovery, and Into Darkness, I guess you have to consider as well. So oh, That's true, yeah. I never yeah. thought about that side of it. Absolutely, yeah. For overall, for canon, what do you think? Do you think Section 31 evens out as a hit or a miss? This, as the cover in this show, it goes against certain parts of what the Federation stands for, but no, I think the good hit. Okay, uh, I will disagree. I think it's a, I think it's a miss, uh, slightly controversially, just for me because of what you said. It is kind of it's antithetical to the idea of, of Star Trek and to you know the great Gene's vision stuff. Not to get all uh, highfalutin about it all, but I just I can't really make peace with it. Um, and if we're taking it as a whole, I'm really not fond of how contradictory it is because. In DS9, it's like super secret. Nobody could possibly ever know anything about it. And in Discovery, it's just operating openly and everybody knows who they are, um, which kind of ruins the, I guess, continuity of it all. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I just, uh, yeah, and I don't like the idea of Starfleet having a Black Ops because it seems contrary to the very idea for me, uh, which isn't to say that I hate all the episodes or anything with them in. I, I absolutely don't. I, I think... Uh, the Discovery episode, Such Sweet Sorrow, I've said many times, is one of my favourite episodes in the franchise, and that's basically one big battle with Section 31, although mm. more so, I suppose, Control. But, um, yeah, so I don't hear all the ideas or anything in it, and I'll still watch them, but I just think, as an idea for me, not super great. Uh, three is the series Star Trek Picard, hit or miss. I'm enjoying it. I'm looking <laughs> forward to Season 2. Um even without Q being dropped in there, I was looking forward to seeing where the story went. Um, it's a different spin on it. I think for me, the core core Star Trek for me is next gen to Voyager. That that block of three. The extra ones are all good. I'm enjoying them. Not quite as good though, as, as for me, the, the, the core Star Trek. So your, your heyday is kind of the 90s into the early noughties. Um, yeah, well, I suppose yeah. late 80s to early noughties, isn't it? So, yeah. Well, that's, yeah. that's fair. It's something you clearly share with Seth MacFarlane, if you've watched The Awful. I think that's a fair assumption, because uh, yeah, that is just basically true. that era, isn't it? So, Absolutely, um, yeah. But yeah, but, so, yeah, yeah but, I think it's got room to grow. It's only, what, so it's only the first season. If you go off the first season of most of them, they were very rough. Mm. Um, certainly, I remember re-watching the start of TNG. It was very rough. Um, as I suppose we'll, we'll talk about later on with bits. But, yeah, there was plot holes. It asked a lot of questions. Um, and some things in it, I think, were a bit like, oh, what are they doing here? Well, what's all that about? And mm. where did they get this massive fleet from? <laughs> um, they clearly well. can't it, because it's all the same bloody ship. <laughs> it is, yes, it was. It's quite, you know, you have the Dominion War, and they've got all their fleets, and all of a sudden, Riker just 
pull out of his backside a massive fleet of brand new Federation ships. Um, yes, that that was a bit like, well, well, I get it. It's a nice spectacle. But well, is it? Because it, it was it was pretty disappointing that it was so poorly rendered that they didn't have like registries or phaser banks or anything. It was just formless yeah. grey blobs, really, on screen. Wasn't Almost, it? yes. I've, I've <laughs> certainly seen some commentaries about it, and they go through the different classes and things, and it's like, yeah, yeah that, that's a bit weird. Why they haven't done it? They, were the, they would have known it was coming for a while and had time yeah. to prepare it. And you are effectively copying and pasting something. Yeah. So why? Is it so rough when you're just transposing that image around the screen? It's a shame, but having said that, they clearly had something in mind or it's been developed because the Eagle Moss model of the Zheng He uh, from that scene is, is fantastic. Now that they've actually <laughs> developed it and given it detail, uh, mm. it looks really good, you know? But um, anyway, that's slightly off topic, but we, we never did get your answer. So for, for what we have so far, which is only the one season, hit or miss for Picard. I'm going to go hit because it's got potential. Okay, so hit with because of potential. That's fair enough. That's a fair enough yes. reason. Uh, I'm going to, again, disagree, and I'm going to say it's a miss so far for me. Ooh. But again, not that I'm saying it's the worst thing ever. And I probably, as you pointed out, I probably would have said the same thing about Next Gen, DS9, and Enterprise after their first seasons. Um, yeah. So it's not like I would stop watching and be like, this is terrible, it's a robination. But for me, I just couldn't get on board with the story. It didn't interest me uh, at all. It seemed really not Star Trek. And I know it's it's kind of silly, geeky stuff, but I just miss Starfleet. And I miss having like a hero Starfleet ship and the uniforms. And uh, that's kind of what I sign up for with Trek, not these random sort of side quests that basically turn into the video game Mass Effect and stuff. You know, it's kind of... The ship design is terrible, in my opinion. The La Serena, it just looks like... It looks like something from one of the old Wipeout PlayStation games. It doesn't look Starfleet at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which it isn't in fairness but yeah, just... so, but yeah you beat me to that yeah it's not so. uh, <laughs> but yeah. even still it doesn't seem to fit in that universe of kind of freighters and smaller ships and stuff and uh, like I say I just don't like the, the, the main plot line it, the metaphors are all muddled and at the very end the kind of big epic machine life threat from another galaxy came from nowhere and was dispatched in 10 minutes and never really got a chance to do anything um, and I think that's that's fundamental of all of it the other thing was the um the relationship between Rafi and Seven, which came at the very last minute of the show, out of absolutely nowhere. I mean, is... <laughs> was it a relationship that were holding hands? Well, it is now. I mean, they've all confirmed it on social medias and stuff. Oh, it's like, we're going to really get into it, and this is what it is. And it's kind of like, I have no issue with the fact that it's two women. I'm fine with that. My issue is you've done nothing to set this up at any point in the yeah. episode. <laughs> Not even a little like stare across the bridge sort of yeah. thing. It's just well, like, they oh, gave, holding hands. Yeah, yeah they yeah. gave Seven that really beautiful scene. One of the few scenes I love with Picard about kind of their shared trauma about being former Borg and stuff. Give her one scene like that with Rafi about how they both suffered trauma and they see something in each other or whatever. Just give us anything so that it's not like, oh, that's a thing, is it? All right. For <laughs> me, I think overall it's just a bit of a miss, but definite potential. Like I said, there's things I like, a couple of speeches I like, an episode or two that I really loved. And uh, I always liked the first episode and bits of the second, and then it just develops into I could care less, to be honest. Like uh, the most damning thing I can say is that when it comes to the new characters, I genuinely don't give a crap if I ever see them again, which is not a good thing to say. They could reveal yeah. that every one of the characters except sort of Jean-Luc and Seven had been killed off, and I would be fine with it because they've got yeah. no yeah, no personalities, really. And yeah. Absolutely, the Romulan kid with the sword. 
He's just the Romney kid of the sword. He's just a Lord of the Rings elf because somebody thought it would be cool. Oh, <laughs> oh yes. Neil on the head a bit there. My yeah. God. Anyway, well, we'll move on anyway because we spent too long on that. And I'll say that number four of the five we're doing is um, Hit or Miss, the Zindi arc from Enterprise. And I've seen opinions divided both ways on this on the internet recently. So. Oh, God. <laughs> it's not supposed to be a stumper. <laughs> um... Ooh, I didn't see this one coming. <laughs> That's um, the idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that entire thing, I, I'm going to go with a miss straight off because, uh, right? It, it was it was built up all the you know the, the that rift that they're in. It's all doom and gloom getting through, and they're getting hit by pirates and all that, and then it just seems to accelerate. They keep accelerating to this end where they just just power through the entire purpose of the season. Um, it was was that season? It was season three, I think, wasn't it? Three, yeah, yeah. So I think they clearly wanted that the last probably into maybe the next season. But no, they'd always intended to uh, yeah. to wrap it up, but they they chucked it's in so the much. kind of they threw in the cliffhanger at the end of season three in the hope that it would convince them to commission series four which is why it's so crazy and they did that before having a plot which you can kind of see when you watch the first two episodes of season four because it clearly is just like somebody at the end of series three was like throw in an alien nazi they're gonna want to see what that's about and then they had to write a script and actually had to involve <laughs> it somehow yeah <laughs> that, that's true yeah uh, but actually, no, I'm, I'm trying to think how many seasons was enterprise four it was four it was four yeah i thought it was four Some yeah. thought, I think it was five because that it, it really started kicking in at season four for for core trek uh, well you know, it was I've a lot seen, of fan um, service i think I, I can't remember where it was i saw it it may have been on memory alpha or one of those sites but somebody i saw described season four as enterprises canon repair tour which i think is a brilliant summation because that's exactly what it was trying to do yeah. <laughs> it really is it's like uh, we're, we're knitting towards the original series as best we can here um mm. but yeah so you didn't like the zindi arc in series three anyway <sighs> not really no. That's fair enough. Uh, it's going to seem like we're just being contrary, but I, again, disagree with you. I think it's a massive hit. I really love that arc. Um, I love the kind of idea of the Delphic Expanse being this big foreboding thing and the Zindi being, I think they're really cool because they're not one unified species. They're like five. Uh, so I love them as an idea. I love the episode where Archer has to basically trick Degra into thinking that he's changed allegiances, but it's all like one kind of shuttle pod that he's <laughs> controlling and uh, trying to keep him from figuring out the truth. I love the episode Damage, where the Enterprise, uh, the NX-01, just gets basically shot to pieces uh, and massively damaged, and then Archer has to do the kind of, like, immoral thing of, we're going to have to steal your warp coil because, you yes. know, we need it kind of thing. So, yes, um, indeed. So, a bit of a baddie at that point there, yes. Yeah, but it's kind of like it. it, it is... It is true, but I also can. I, I had more of an issue with it at the time, but now it's kind of like he really is desperate and on the last kind of uh, rung of this journey to try to save the whole earth. And we've even seen in an alternate timeline how badly it turns out if they don't get to it in time. But uh, yeah. yeah, what's so, that quote from Quark about humanity? You take away their. They're the all well and good when you have their holodecks powered and their stomachs full, but. You take away their creature comforts and they're as bloodthirsty as any Klingon. That's it, yes, <laughs> that is it. Yeah. And yeah, that that yeah, when the chips are down, you know, they'll do what they need to. Hmm. For better or worse. 
So I love that whole Zindi thing, and I actually really liked the idea that it tied into eventually the slow reveal of the sphere builders and how that was what created the expanse. And so that gave you the kind of clever, quick way to deal with the problem, I guess, at the end of the yeah, season. Where, where did it all come from? Yeah, exactly. Why not be mentioned since? It was part of the Temporal Cold War, wasn't it? And they kind of just ended that storyline. But you did get the brief shot. That's how you got the Enterprise J and the kind of battle with the, against the Sphere Builders, which was why mm. they were trying to prevent the Federation. And it's ideas that I kind of liked anyway, personally. I thought uh, the last two seasons of Enterprise I thought were great. So Yeah, I, as an entire arc, yeah. But there was certainly you know, nice parts of it, I think, definitely. Mm. Fair enough. Uh, and so finally, just to move us on then, the last thing for today, hit or miss the USS Cerritos. Ah, <laughs> uh, I mean, Lower Decks is just fun, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It, it's fun. It's Star Trek. It doesn't take itself too seriously. Um, so I'm talking specifically about the ship. The ship? <laughs> oh. Um, it looks a bit weird. The... Yeah, I don't know. You've got your saucer, you've got the bits hanging off and cells. <laughs> and then uh, I've completely gone uh, blank. What's the um, the mid-deflector dish hanging between the warpner cells? And you've yeah. never really had anything between the nacelles, really, in in most designs. <laughs> Fan of the design, or no? Um, nah. We may be ending up disagreeing again here. Yeah, we I, only it, agreed it, on the first one. <laughs> yeah, well, of course. Why wouldn't you agree on uh, Jonathan Adax? <laughs> yes, Cerritos. Yeah. It's a ship. Uh, it flies. So you're going to say a bit, a bit of a miss anyway for you, though. It's, it's all right. It's Star Trek. It looks Federation, which I yeah. think is the best thing you can see. It's yeah. definitely, you look at that and go, that is a Federation starship. Is it one of the better looking ones? No, it's not. But it's not meant to be. So we'll call it a slight miss, maybe, for you. <laughs> hmm. Uh, yeah, I think it's a hit. I really like it. I like that it's you can see the design lineage from the Galaxy and the Nebula class, but also hints of the um, Miranda class, the kind of the way that the nacelles are almost like the roll bar, uh, which is what I compare the like deflector being between the nacelles to, I guess. Uh, yeah. yeah. Although it is, it is upside down, I guess, to that configuration, but you know, <laughs> you get the point. Um, and I really like it's a, such a stupid detail, but I like the fact that the ships all have their own mission assignments, and so the colour on the top of the saucer matches whatever their mission is. So the Cerritos is yellow because they're sort of second contact engineering type missions, and the other California-class ships, you've seen there have been some red ones and some blue ones for, like, command missions and medical missions, and I just think that's a really cool touch. <laughs> I hadn't noticed. I hadn't noticed. I oh, you'll, attention. you'll have to go back and look, yeah, because uh, yeah. you can find uh, images of them all, but yeah, I think, I think Cerritos might be the only yellow one, or there might be one more. But I know for a fact, I think it's the Solvang appeared, which was the red command one, which was immediately destroyed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think the blue one was on the one with the weird uh, growing vessel thing that ultimately ended up destroyed as well. <laughs> but yeah, I like it. I think it's a really cool uh, kind of ship idea. That was that was an interesting hit or miss section, I think. We had very little agreement. We could All we could really take away from that is that Jadzia Dax was great and everything else is a little bit of a mixed bag. <laughs> I thought I knew you, my God. <laughs> Well, I mean, like I said, there's nothing that I would think is outrageous or terrible. And even uh, even the things you were, said were a miss were like, you know, Enterprise Season 3 is a miss, but great episodes. And Cerritos is a bit of a miss, but it, at least it looks like a Starfleet ship design and it's cool enough, you know. Yeah. Um, the next section is going to be the analysis. So we will begin the analysis, which is the main review. 
and the episode we're doing today, if you couldn't tell from the thumbnail and the little bit of writing on screen and all of the promotion that I've given it, is the Next Generation Pilot Encounter at Farpoint. Uh, it's the feature-length version, presumably, rather than the two-part. Not that there's a difference, but that was the one that was on the Blu-ray set, so that's the one I watched. <laughs> yeah, I'm playing um, Yeah. Um, so we'll get straight into it and just say then, what was your thoughts, without giving too much away, just initially of Encounter at Farpoint uh, when you'd watched it this time around? It has a lot to do. <laughs> it has enough. a lot to do. It's obviously brand new show, brand new characters, tries to touch on pretty much everybody in some regards, gives you a, a brief idea of who everyone is. And it does it well. You can see uh, a lot of things that would later be ironed out. Hmm. but uh, I'll let that be covered. I don't want to waffle on too much. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think there's a lot of... I think some of the people that write off the episode overall don't necessarily acknowledge how much stuff that it sets up that becomes important later, uh, which, you know, I'm not I'm not going in any order, so we might as well get into it and just say that things like um, Data's quest to be human and the idea of uh, nice-to-meet-you Pinocchio literally started here, and that's that's his entire arc, like right the way to his whichever one of his deaths you think is the most permanent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, definitely. So, uh, and yeah, the idea of, again, the Q putting humanity on trial uh, is something that it looks like they're revisiting in Picard season two. So that's another ongoing thread that's super important for a long time. That's uh, it, yeah. Started and ended with Q. Yeah. Really? And uh, yeah, Next Gen itself did, of course, as well. So the setup of uh, Riker and Troy being kind of ex-lovers with that connection um, yes, it's a complete rip-off of Ilya and Decker from the motion picture, but, you know, it's an important plotline. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I'm glad they, 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 they calmed it down a bit later on. It was always yeah. a thing that had a connection, they still, you know, liked each other. It became more of a working relationship, and, and later on, you know, other things developed from it, but oh, yeah, it was a bit soppy at the start. And like, it was, yeah. Oh, it was... See, uh, can't speak to her, oh. Yeah, it was very melodramatic and like, can you still hear my thoughts? I can't say goodbye. And it was kind of, oh, we're getting a bit soap opera here, aren't we? <laughs> oh, that, yes. That would, <laughs> that would probably be my summary of, of that. It was like a soap opera. Yeah. Very dramatic. Yeah. And yet, yet it doesn't really, like you say, it tempers it down. So as you get further into the series, it doesn't play as over the top as that. Even when they're married and stuff, it's not like that level of uh, of melodrama but mm. anyway speaking of which it also establishes the whole weird dynamic that's going on between picard and the crushers <laughs> so you have yes. um, the establishment that picard was the one who basically ordered uh, dr crusher's husband wesley's dad to his death and brought the body home and everything but clearly again from the overly melodramatic music and lighting and acting there's something going on between uh john luke and beverly there <laughs> and indeed indeed um, <laughs> thank god will wheaton doesn't look anything like him um, <laughs> that would have been yes. creepy questions yes indeed. <sighs> uh, but yeah and uh yeah, I suppose it does also introduce not just Picard's relationship with Wesley, but Wesley as a character, uh, which is probably, for me, the least Wesley. successful part of the episode because it's just, it's as bad as everyone says, really, isn't it? When you when you remove the rose-tinted goggles and it's just like, why is there a kid just, oh, I don't like it. <laughs> I do not. If there wasn't that, that, that unspoken love interest thing and it was like old family friend, their kid... And you just give them a quick you know, look around the bridge. 
I just can't get on board with the idea that Picard would be like, you know what, man who's never done anything and is only a teenager, come and just be a bridge officer for me and it'll be good experience. Like, dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, ah, <laughs> you've read about the systems. Clearly you're qualified to use them in your deal with high pressure situations. Yeah. So that's some of the things I think that don't work and along with some of the things that do. Like I said, the cool setup and stuff of all those ideas and the um, character interactions and stuff, the way that they are to each other, I think is surprisingly fully formed for me, the way everybody kind of acts. Their characters are all pretty much here. Um, yeah. Which, you know, you, you don't get yeah. that in a lot of pilots. A lot of the time it's like, why is everyone acting when you watch it back completely different? I think we'll just go anyway and, and we'll go through it uh, piece by piece because I have kind of got some chronological notes, uh, even though we touched on little bits and pieces there. Mm-hmm. Um, so first, the first thing I'd noticed was uh, it's it's – starts from the very beginning and it kind of it is kind of true throughout the the episode that there's like a real whimsical magic of exploration kind of sense to this uh, especially prevalent in that uh, first music and the kind of uh, the gorgeous shot into like zooming into the window and Picard in shadow and stepping forward and giving his captain's log is very like uh, evocative I guess is the word yeah that opening shot was yeah just pans in with the enterprise and yeah a bit creepy with Picard in a dark room <laughs> Yeah, it's just so we can step out of the shadows dramatically. <laughs> I don't think there's anything more to it than that. But uh, yeah, and then you, yeah, straight away your great, great uh, data banter that you're straight in with, which surprised me from memory. I didn't realize this was like literally the first line of the episode was, uh, "Oh, Mister Data, you'd agree Starfleet's orders are unusual." And no, I can't understand the word "snoop" and whatever else. And I'm kind of like, this is banter that you wouldn't expect to be the very first thing the show gives you because again that's something that kind of runs on throughout the show and it's arriving here fully like uh, oh this character's going to be fun you know <laughs> uh, and banter as well it, it's odd because especially one thing I did notice re-watching the amount everyone stands up when they talk yeah there's a lot of that in Venice isn't there um, yeah you know it's... it doesn't matter what's going on you know they could be doing anything on that console they want to yeah. speak. Let's ignore what's in the console. Those core bridge systems. Just, I'm, I'm going to go and talk to the captain. I'll leave them there for a second. Could be yeah. ships coming in. Anything. I need to tell I, the captain something. I'll turn around, face him, stand up, and ignore what I'm doing. I would put that on the director because it's obviously like he's decided how to shoot that, and he hasn't quite worked out how to shoot the bridge set where everybody's kind of sitting, talking, and the people at the front have to kind of turn around to talk to the captain. I guess so. Yeah, it's difficult to do, but. As you say, it's more pre- present in the first season, I think, than eventually they realise just give swivel chairs or something. <laughs> That's it, yeah. The, there's a lot of things, I think, throughout the the show, and certainly the early season, phrases they use which are more get become more refined, mm. you know, deflectors and shields and you know, arming the throat on torpedoes and, and, and even arming the phasers and, and the sensors, mm. how sensors work. Um, the other first episode, they go. It's not someone on the bridge that tells them the ship comes. They go off. You know, Picard's messages somewhere else on the ship to tell them what the alert was for. Well, no, he gets a proximity alert to the captain's chair, which Wesley picks up like, yeah. uh, absent-mindedly, doesn't he? And uh, <laughs> where's all the bridge officers who have access to all this? Well, where's where's the tactical station? Surely that should be the one you would send a proximity alert to. Absolutely, but, and uh, the amount of amount of crew on the ship. I know it's supposed to be full of people. Yeah, but it, it was certainly edging a bit more into the um, original series amount of people on the ship because everywhere you go on the corridors, there seems to be loads of people. 
Yeah, I was going off on a tangent here, but yeah, no, but there's lots of people everywhere, I, so they don't do a, there's no empty corridors on the Enterprise. I think that's deliberate because it is to show you that kind of like even the original series, this they had like three, four hundred people or whatever, and they point out that the Enterprise D, I mean, it's not in this episode, but they mention a few times it's like a, a floating city in space, and there's like well over a thousand people, and yeah. it includes families and everything. So I think that's deliberate to give you the sense of like, yeah, this ship is crowded with people. Um, and, you know, even Wesley's line, it'll be hard to get bored on this ship, uh, kind of reinforces that it's it's a multifunctional, different generations altogether kind of thing, not just mm. a military mm. ship. Um, but, yeah, either way. Um, so, I, I personally, I'm not sure what you think of this. I love um, the effect of the cage thing that um, Q throws around the Enterprise from space. Right, yeah, yeah. I've always loved that, and I don't know why, because it's so basic. It doesn't look anything special, but... <laughs> yeah, this day and age, it's a bit old-fashioned, but yeah. yeah, at the time, and yeah, it's it's a solid. This is a a magical barrier sort of thing, yeah, exactly. Um, with weird, like a futuristic bar by offense. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Sort of it's like, oh, okay. But I like that. It's the same same reason that I love um, the Tholian web. But even though it's really basic, and it is mm. just literally like you're just spinning a web full of squares around something, you know. But uh, yeah, it looks cool. But yeah, speaking of uh, Q, I really love the direction choice of um, showing Picard a couple of times with that negative space over his uh, shoulder, his right shoulder, and then having that be where Q just kind of blinks in for the very first time is such a really cool direction, uh, mm. directorial choice, I think, because um, it does kind of catch you off guard. It's like, what the heck? <laughs> um, so, and I do think uh, John Delancey is just outstanding from like word one, and he's he steals the episode. Uh, would you yeah. agree or or no? <laughs> yeah, definitely. This the the different personas he turns up as each yes. one is distinctly different. It uh, is that's uh, really good. Yeah, very yeah. thespian at the start as well. Where he turns up as a ship captain. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, he comes, doesn't he? Because he, he's giving it uh, now comes to thee as a, a former ship captain, and so that you may understand me or whatever you know. And uh, that, like you yeah. say, it's. Uh, I think it's clearly, this guy clearly has a, a knack for the theatrical, but we'll get into talking about Q because it's interesting and we can go through the kind of the whole thing. But um, what I noticed, which I didn't remember again the same way, I remembered him being way more of a villain and kind of um, nasty and, and evil initially in his assessment and then gradually getting more and more like impish as the show goes on. But watching it back, he's actually kind of already a little bit of that impish kind of... Um, quality and stuff anyway and uh there's points playful, like yeah yeah playful and and, for, and yes fair enough it's horrible with the court stuff and that all gets really super intense but even then at the end of the episode i was genuinely surprised when he points out that he is trying to help them and he's telling mm -hmm. them what to do um yeah so zone's abducted and troy said she feels the satisfaction of the, the thing torturing and then hugh's the one who's like we should we should go beam over there and see what's going on and uh, whatever else and even like I said, has the line. Oh, I'm trying to help you. You know, um, watch your temper, Captain, or whatever. Um, and then only once he realizes they're doing the right course of action does he completely change tactic. And he's like, "Oh no, fire faces at them. Uh, do everything. You know, that's the wrong thing." All of a sudden, so I, I think there is a little bit of that. Like he he respects them and he does want them to ultimately win the test. You know, <laughs> for uh, if you go looking for that anyway. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, the courtroom stuff though is is brutal, obviously. So, um, yeah, that's definitely nasty. Yeah, uh, and that kind of leads me into the other thing, which is 
a very weird thing that the episode added uh, for Gene Roddenberry because it's not like him at all, and he did kind of co-write the episode and wrote this part of the story. Um, mm. The kind of post-atomic horror stuff that he goes into, which is a new addition to the lore. Um, yeah, it's really dark. The kind of like soldiers being controlled by drugs, and uh, then these courts now really have uh, guilty until proven innocent because bringing the innocent to trial would be unfair. <laughs> yeah, go uh, logical, logical, but oh, wait there. No. Yeah, it's it's fascist states, though, isn't it? And stuff. Mm. Uh, the, the slight thing that bugs me is that it's um, it's a court from what twenty seventy nine, which is many years after first contact has happened, uh, which kind of doesn't jibe with the rest of the chronology of the show, or does because maybe that's why the Vulcans and Enterprise are so kind of like we still don't trust you. It took you a long time to stop being really barbaric even when we landed, you know? Um, I mean, you could have different parts of the world, obviously, and, well, and course, things yeah. like that. Um, it does seem to kind of semi-racist <laughs> semi kind of hint that it's somewhere in Asia, I think, by the, the layout and a lot of the background characters, but, uh, yeah. Well, most the, the the sort of audience, shall we say, of that, mm. I think, are just, well, American uh, people, basically. Well, it's, not... it's just uh, the the... the the announcer and the yes. and the sort of the guy the gong yeah. um, obviously fit that oriental style. Yeah, completely. But uh, it's just a surprise that it's something so dark from an era when things were supposed to be kind of turning around, and it was a weird thing, like I said, for Gene to kind of put on because I think this is the first time they mentioned that there will be a World War Three and it'll be this nuclear horror and lead to mutations and, like I said, just just the dark idea of controlling soldiers with drugs who are. And again, that really brutal scene of the guy who gets bested by Tasha. So he um, just takes a sniff of his drugs before getting shot and killed by the other dude because he's failed in his duty. And I was like, yeah. wow, that is really dark. I am shocked by how uh, how brutal it is. But uh, a bit of a prelude to the Jemadar, I suppose, actually, as well. Actually, yeah. Control Good point. The Ketrasol White thing, yeah. Yeah. And Never you know, they, they, they're dead and you know, they go into battle to get their lives back. and. Hmm. Oh, that's very dark and, yeah, you're dead. You, yeah. If you want to live, go and do this thing, and well, if you survive, well, you survive. Yeah. I'm with you, though. I think that the way that it links it to, like, periods in Earth's history, because he even does the whole uh, 50s and 60s era, the issue is patriotism. We're going to destroy the commies. We need a few good men, kind of. So yeah. it, it makes it all part of that same lineage, and it is, like Picard says, we remember our history even when we're ashamed of it, because it is a lot to be kind of ashamed of, but Hmm. They're kind of proving that's not who they are now, you know, uh, which I, I loved that as well. The touch that it's actually Picard who comes up with the idea of like, well, test us now. Um, and Q, who's like, oh, that's a great idea. Excellent. Because initially he took his ideas for the court and everything anyway. But then when they're in the court and he realizes how unfair it is and everything. I just wanted to say really quickly. This is just a really funny note. But when Q first appears and uh, Lieutenant Torres tries to sort of jump up and zap him and he gets frozen. Uh, oh, yeah. Clearly, like frozen, complete frost and ice all over him. And Troy just runs over and goes, "He's frozen." And I've just made the note. Yeah, no sh. <laughs> we really didn't need the commentary on that one, did we? Yeah, I <laughs> chose a bit ditzy, I think, on that. Yeah. <laughs> but oh, uh, God. we have to talk about the next bit, which is the saucer separation. My word, they're very proud of that, aren't they? <laughs> they are. They are. And I actually looked this up because um, I was like, I want to mention that. They only used that, um, well, three times. Three times. Three, four, four, four includes, movie. Yeah, fourth includes generations, which was a separation and a destruction of the drive section. Uh, indeed. Uh, 
but yeah, obviously you got that one, uh, Best of Both Worlds, and it was um, Arsenal of Freedom. Arsenal of Freedom, yeah, that's it. Yeah, against the weird floaty drone things, of which there seemed to be a massive one in space while they were at it. Where <laughs> that came from and where that went, who knows? Um, we'll review that another time, I'm sure. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's just it's really weird because you can see, and again, I've read all about it as well, how they kind of they wanted the source of separation to be an almost weekly thing. Um, because it was a cool new thing the ship could do, and then realised it was just far too uh, expensive and cost prohibitive to do it. So it's weird how it did only happen like three times at random throughout the show. Um, well, that's it. I think the, you know, the first couple of times you show it, you show it separating, and after after that, it's just you know initiate source separation. You have to literally walk off the bridge a couple of seconds, mm. and then something happens, and then they could be just sitting on the battle bridge at that stage. You don't have to see them walking in and. Yeah, oh, there's a lot of that in this. I think that's the thing um, I've also made that note is that there's a lot of clearly stalling for time. Uh, and that was um, when I was reading about like the formation of the episode and how it came about. It was supposedly because there was like a bitter argument between Roddenberry and the studio about whether this would be an hour with adverts or two hours or an hour and a half. Um, and he asked kind of DC Fontana to write the episode and she only wrote enough for just over an hour. Um, because that was what she was kind of told to do at the time. Uh, and then it was Jean who took it away and was like, oh, I'll uh, I'll pad it out to give them their two hours then that they want, um, which, you know, controversial. It might have been potentially to get wages out of her or something, but I'm not here to d- dis the legalities of it. But um, either way, it was him who basically wrote the entire Q plot line and uh, DC Fontana who wrote the Farpoint Station mystery and the Bandy and everything. So hmm. you can kind of see that. There's a little bit of a cut and shut moment in the in the halfway point, and it does feel a little bit like two stories at times that don't seem to fit, but then by the end really find their link, which is cool. Um, yeah. But yeah, the fact the fact that um, Roddenberry had to write stuff to make it up to the two hours is painfully apparent because, like you said, the source of separation takes forever. It's like walking and tracking them through the ship and arriving in the battle bridge and sitting at your station and showing the ship in space and then showing it decoupling and then showing the thing go away and then even when um, he makes Riker do the manual re- yeah. reassembly and it's like, we're really going to spend five minutes just showing you reattaching the saucer? This is something that like future seasons would literally be a line of dialogue like, and reattach the saucer and then it, you just wouldn't see it, it would just be fine. Yeah. <laughs> You've uh, seen 20 minutes later, it's done, yeah. they're all back to business, someone's having a cup of tea or you know, Cup of uh, Rockagina. <laughs> exactly. Um, and like showing Wes around the bridge, exactly the same thing. Yes. That's a filler. They could have just not bothered having that at all. Yeah, I guess. But I, I, in that case, I like it because it's kind of it's the wonder of showing the bridge. And so it does give you that kind of small look around yeah. moment. And it doesn't seem to drag as much as some of the other stuff. But yeah, the things that really dragged for me was this whole source of separation kind of thing and uh i had a few questions about it on a this again really nerdy kind of technical is it possible level which is that they say that they're doing it at warp that's mm. really really surely as soon as the saucer detaches given that it doesn't have warp engines the drive section would just slice through it wouldn't it i thought the drives <laughs> i thought the source section did have a low warp no it just has the impulse engines that's kind mm. of the kind of the whole point like the warp the nacelles are on the drive section. The impulse engines are on the top of the saucer section. Um, yeah. I'm not sure if the drive has impulse as well. Maybe it only has warp, but yeah. Because I'm sure in one oh, of the, the drive episodes... Does, yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. the main um, impulse... Oh, of course, is... it's at the back, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, technically, you know, the science thing, you would 
keep that momentum going until something acts against you to slow you down. But then we're getting into the science of how warp drive works, so let's not. That's the thing. I mean, uh, I can I can hand wave it away because I can kind of say, well, the saucer was still within the warp bubble, even though it was separated or whatever. Um, but it is kind of like, mm, really, have you have you thought this through when you wrote it? It's it's a little bit sus to me, you know. Um, but again, it looks really cool, so who cares? <laughs> it's the same with even when they're recoupling. Like, I don't love that the scene takes forever and it's completely superfluous. But at the same time, watching the little docking clamps like rise up and attach, it looks really cool. <laughs> um, First time, second time, you have to explain that sort of thing. And yeah. then afterwards, it becomes it happened. Yeah. Done. Exactly, yeah. But uh, so we get we get anyway a couple of little good character moments I think here as well. So first of all, I just wanted to mention O'Brien, his first appearance, <laughs> and in a red shirt. I know a red shirt. What's that about? <laughs> but yeah. Never mind. So but yeah, he's in the odd times throughout the start, but he gets you know gets a couple of lines that sort of thing. And it's yeah. not until like, the Keiko thing happens where mm. he's, he's actually, you know, and that's where they really introduce. The characters, um, that's a couple of seasons in actually as well. It's quite late. It's like season four or something because doesn't he? He's like he, he's dotted about just randomly in different places, and then I think by season two he's the transporter chief, and they've established that. And then it's yeah. not until like you say season four when it's like he actually gets a life and a wife and everything, and uh, they develop him a little bit more before heading off to DS Nine to to really give the character some juice, you know. But uh, mm. yeah, <clears throat> on a more sort of um, familiar notice, I really like the way that Picard's really sweet to Tasha. Because um, like he's portrayed kind of as a hard ass, I think a lot of the times, and uh, the really strict disciplinarian captain. But when she's like, um, "We should absolutely fight," and he's like, "Well, how? What are we going to do against something that can do all that?" I'm open to suggestions, and she kind of looks crestfallen and just says, uh, I, "I spoke before I thought, sir. I'm really sorry." And he's like, "It's okay. I understand. It's perfectly fine. You know, you did your best. You were, too, you know, you you reacted as well as you could or whatever." But I was like, "That's surprising." He scores uh, off later on. He does, but, on the screen. he does, but only because Riker kind of then fulfills the opposite function because Riker's the one, and I think that's true, deliberate true. for me. Riker's the one who's kind of like, you you acted quickly. It's a good thing to be. And then Picard's like, but foolishly. And I was like, mm, I can forgive it because he can clearly, clearly see that like Riker's given him the good cop routine, I guess, you know. Mm, um, mm. But yeah, I like that it's quickly yeah. established, by the way, talking, we're going straight into the, the court, United... Uh, United Earth has been abolished, all that nonsense, even though it, it hasn't, but we'll we'll ignore that. Uh, but we'll go straight into the uh, the court scenes and see. I like that it's established it's not an illusion or a dream straight away, that it's real, because um, that mm. sets up the stakes for this episode and for every future time Q appears, because um, it could be too easy to be like, well, it doesn't matter if somebody dies because it's only an illusion. Uh, I also love how resolute Picard is against Q. Like, he completely stands up to him and more than holds his own. Um, yeah. He's like a skillful kind of outlawing the judge kind of thing you know with the i'm not reading these charges because they're not against us and this isn't really a fair thing and you stick to your rules and then q gets so frustrated he's like well just shoot them if he says anything other than guilty and picard reluctantly says guilty but then just adds provisionally <laughs> so he still gets kind of the last word i'm like yes yeah. very he still captain. has that confidence later like against the you always sitting standing in front of the the klingon high council and he's got that resolute he's certain of who he is but yeah. in, in the episodes a lot of him having doubt as well mm. Ricardo had doubt it is but, yeah it is internally but i don't think he ever really shows it to the crew well, certainly not to the the villains of the pc the q or i suppose zone and the bandy as well later 
he's very um like determined towards them so i like that in the in a captain you know it's cool don't love randomly that the direction here just goes really weird maybe it was just my blu-ray but i don't think so that it just turns like everything has a black smudge around the border um as, as picard and q are arguing and i was kind of like what was this decision about it just all looks like a weird black mist has descended and i could do without that that um, q recognizes the farpoint mission is the, a good idea for testing them that's a good way that the two stories interact and, and it's done cleverly it's weird to me that they introduce Riker and half of the crew half an hour in uh it seems odd but apparently the makers of the show and stuff loved it so much that when they were writing the ds9 pilot they did the same thing so they don't introduce like dax and some of the other crew until the what what they call the third or fourth act of the pilot and i was mm. like ah, seems odd to me but okay if you think it worked fair enough I mean, I suppose not everyone's going to get there at the same time, and, and that sort of proves it. Um, yeah. The fact that they're at some random space station on the edges of Federation space, as it's described, and just yeah. get dropped off there. Yeah. Well, did did the Enterprise not come from Earth? Well, it's never made clear, really, is it? I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's very weird, but uh, I just I find it odd as a pilot that we didn't like introduce the ship's crew already there. Uh, it's it's not bad. I think it's a really cool, uh, unusual choice. But it just strikes me when Riker and stuff does appear that you're like, oh crap, yeah, they're not all together, are they? <laughs> they're in a different place, yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I suppose it's it's a good way to stagger the introductions and not feel like you're bombarding exposition on the the audience, I guess. Mm. Oh, that's Geordie nice. in red as well as command rather than his yellow. Well, he was in red for the first uh, season until he became chief engineer because he yeah, was the did, um, yeah. he was the pilot. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, yeah. Speaking of Geordie, the way it, it is nice that they uh, actually explain his visor in like, his second scene because I wasn't sure if that does happen in the pilot or not. But um, yeah. yeah, you get the full explanation of what it does. It sees EM things. It's kind of sight, but not, and it hurts, frankly, because it's not the real senses. Um, mm. Which it, it gives you some like really sad pathos to that character right away. That he's like, well, I can't take painkillers or have surgery because then it would affect the way it works. So I guess I'm just going to have to live with the pain. And I was like, wow. It's weird that a scene ends on Star Trek with like, well, there was no resolution to that then, was there? You've just got to yeah. be like, oh, well. Uh, Dude. I, do, I do wonder if the new kind of ocular implants he gets by the movies have avoided that pain. And if it, if they have, why the heck he didn't just do that sooner? <laughs> but, you know. Well, I think he always said they were an option, but they weren't mm. quite as good as a visor. Ah, right. Okay. Well, that makes sense, I guess. Like the 20% difference or something. So it was like, well, I suppose... But we see them you zooming know. in in first contact and doing loads of cool stuff. Although maybe they've just developed, I suppose, by that point in, in time. It's been like 10 years or something. Yeah, that's so. it. That's it. Yeah. Um, so what did you think randomly we'll get onto the bigger thing, the uh, the bandy mystery and the far point station stuff? What did you make of all that? Um, meh. <laughs> <laughs> Not a that's fan meh. then, eh? Yeah, oh, the bandy have done something. Okay. I was more interested in Q. And, and all that, and well, yeah, I think... for it to get back to that, which seemed a lot more exciting, yeah. and this was just like a little side thing of like, oh, the bandy, okay, some random bunch of people, and yeah. you know, the, obviously the odd, the mystery there of the you know, um, the apples appearing or the cloth yes. appearing, absolutely, and, yeah. and stuff like that. It's like, okay, well, that's that's weird. But then we've got this guy who's just clicking his fingers, and all this other stuff happens. So it's like, yeah, it's weird trivial. that they do. They don't immediately kind of go to the pains to point out that these things aren't connected in that way. They do eventually say it's not Q that's doing it, and that's that's the thing I like about this is I like that it's that mystery, 
um, like you, immediately you see Zone talking to just thin air, like don't do that or we'll have to punish you and we will. Um, and you don't know initially like what he's or who he's talking to, which mm. is really odd. But um, I love that mystery. Unfortunately, I think by the time you get to the third or fourth scene of Troy in the tunnels going, I can feel pain and suffering. And I was like, yeah, we know. Get on with it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, well, um, you've already said the filler and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, it was padding for time, really, wasn't it? But um, yeah, I thought good acting, though. I thought Marina did, even though she apparently hates her acting, I thought she was really good when she actually like is uh, sort of broken down to tears by feeling the, um, the far point life form and then... Uh, you know, feels the great joy at the very end when they're reunited with the very cheesy close-up of the tendrils holding hands and stuff. You know, but uh, yeah, so I thought she did a good, uh, a good enough job. But uh, what do you think about the the acting in general in the episode? Do you think there's a standout other than obviously Delancey is Q? I think they're also really raw. Uh, it's odd. Data's oh. a bit menacing at times. Yeah, Data's a little. <laughs> Data's a little weird because he's playing the kind of innocence of a child type thing a little bit more than the character would settle into but i think mm. that's the way that he's written when he doesn't understand like some basic words and stuff um so yeah i can see what you're saying with that <clears throat> excuse me but i think the rest of the characters like i said I, I was surprised how kind of fully formed like picard and Riker um are and yeah, i suppose but... I, that's probably it like to be fair because dr crusher again is way too brash at first than she would eventually be in the series. Although I do love Yara in this episode as well. Um, I think she's kind of arriving fully formed as the character, but then she doesn't get long anyway. So uh, Yeah, this is it. Everyone gets sort of touched on all the, the main uh, characters and things, and that's about it. Um, yeah. I do love oh, little moments, though, like um, the little character moment of Worf saying that he he initially would was reluctant to take the saucer section because as a Klingon to seek escape when his captain goes into battle would be dishonorable. Um, I was like, you didn't need that scene, but it's a nice little touch because it gives you a lot about those characters that Worf is still kind of the Klingon heart and Picard is still taking none of his BS and like, no, no, you'll do as you're told. You're a staff, the officer. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. it. I mean, I understand why he eventually takes over because you have two characters there who are yes. very much in for the kill. Yeah. Um, and eventually that is just Worf and you expect it of Worf. Yeah. That's why Worf's good in Next Gen, but his character really comes to life a lot more in um, DS9, yeah. where you see a lot more of, I suppose, the Klingon side of it as well. But you've obviously yeah. already got the, the build-up from Next Gen. Just a couple of things I wanted to go over. The first reference to Picard hating kids and asking Riker to help with his kind of image uh, is a really nice character touch, but they kind of abandon that, I think, later. Um he gets more interaction and it becomes less of a thing, yeah. I love the episode Disaster when he's like trapped in the lift with the kids, but yeah. I don't think it does enough with the whole, like, if he's really that uncomfortable with kids, it should be a huge, major, awkward kind of dilemma. And it seems like very quick and easy. And at the end of it, he's like, I'm actually fine with kids now. Uh, <laughs> so, it's still a, leave, a leader and it's still an emergency. Yeah. That would, that would kick in and be like, right, I need to do something. I can't, I suppose, leave the kids here. And he, he falls back on what he knows, you know, singing the song, the climbing song and stuff yeah. like that. So, um, um, but on, on the same scene, um, when Picard is grilling, or a similar scene, when Picard's grilling Riker and uh, he talks about how Riker won't allow the captain to beam into a dangerous situation and he's kind of interviewing him about, mm -hmm. do you trust the captain's orders? And what do you think of that whole scene? Are you a fan of it or, or not so much? Because they make a lot of reference to that in the first season as well. I mean, it's like, oh, this conflict and stuff like that. But 
I think it, it it's important that it was then and, and done because mm. yeah, Riker is the one who will go down for the rest of the show basically mm. on the away missions, and the captain is on the ship. Yes, it, that it, was, and they're making uh, that difference between the next the the original series where Kirk was there every time. That was like, exactly my note. Yeah, I think that that entire scene is basically whoever wrote it, Gene, for example, writing. By the way, this isn't the original series, so don't expect to see Patrick Stewart getting into fist fights every week on a planet. You know, um, what did you think of the um, appearance by uh, Admiral McCoy seeing the ship off? That was apparently a surprise at the time. Um, I wouldn't know how they got him in. Yeah, <laughs> well, he was offered. He was like really honoured and came in and did it, and uh, they kept it a complete surprise. The character was only listed as Admiral, so apparently. On the very first night it went out, that was actually like a, a pleasant surprise for the audience. But um, I just love that scene, the way that it establishes the kind of um, comparing Data's struggle to Spock's. Uh, the kind of, yeah, you look like a Vulcan. They can be a pain in the butt sometimes, but, uh, you know. And then just the glorious thing about uh, treat the Enterprise like a lady. She's got the right name and uh, she'll always get you home kind of thing. It's a nice mm. little touch, I think. But uh, Yeah, it's a passing the torch sort of thing, yeah. I do uh, this again. We're moving on a little bit, but yeah. But I like. I find it weird the propaganda moment when um, Zorn is threatening to go to the Ferengi, and Picard says, "Like, I hope they find you as tasty as their last client." And I was like, "Well, mm. they really, they really didn't know what they were doing with the Ferengi in the first season, did they?" Until they really were like, "Well, we can't really make them the ultimate bad guy because they're just ridiculous." Um, yeah, once they actually put them out, they were menacing, but they weren't that menacing, and that's where they, the well, they bought in the Borg, but for the Borg were. The Uber bad, yeah, and then from there, like the step beneath, the, the more regular became obviously the Romulans, really, and then the Cardassians later yeah, on. Completely. But um, yeah, I remember, I do remember reading that the Ferengi were supposed to be the the next gen equivalent of the Klingons because they were kind of playing nice and, and served in Starfleet with Worf and everything, but um, it just didn't really happen. And I find it hilarious that this line kind of has to be explained. So I was reading on the wiki page that there's like a book or something which explains that um, Grand Negus Zek was basically spreading propaganda because he was terrified of the, the Federation because he didn't believe that anybody who doesn't deal with money could be any kind of rational or sane. So he was terrified of them. So he was spreading these rumors of like, we are vicious, we will eat you and stuff. And I was like, wow, that's some great uh, recording of a uh, completely different line, but I like it anyway. We're getting to the end now, but basically we've already went over kind of what your thoughts are on the Farpoint mystery. I like it, you know, um, I, I like that it's, it's yes, it's convenient when the flying saucer version comes in and it turns out to be its mate and whatever, but it gets you to where you need to be, so. Yeah. And I will say the special effects on the Blu-ray are massively improved uh, for the, the space dwelling life form. It looks super realistic, which uh, I don't remember it looking when I last watched it, and uh I didn't notice, apparently it is actually different on the upscaled HD. You can see that one of them's blue and one of them's pink, whereas they both just looked blue in the original version, um, which is a nice little touch. So that's just yeah. my slight plug for Blu-ray about why it's better. But, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's basically... Oh, that was the other thing. The other Talking about padding while I'm giving the negatives, the Crusher scene with Picard... When he kind of he's already shouted at her, then he goes down to the office to kind of formally welcome her. It's a really good scene and everything, but it seems to be placed in the wrong place because it's like Q's testing them. The um, ship is firing at the surface and everything, and he just disappears for a chat with Doctor Crusher for five minutes. And yes, that's a good point. Yeah, we're beyond just doing something personal, but boy, a minute. <laughs> 
And, I mean, uh, that must have taken him about five, ten minutes to get down there. I don't yeah. know how long, you know, the distance-wise. and That's table table chat. <laughs> yeah, It's like, oh, yeah, come, just have a chat and come back. Yeah. Meanwhile, <laughs> the city that you're there, well, not quite the city, obviously far points fine, that's our actual thing. Yeah. I don't know if but, um, you noticed around these kinds of scenes, it was a line I picked up on because I thought it was very meta. When they're in the caverns and Data's explaining everything and then Data actually has the line, sorry, sir, I seem to be commenting on everything. <laughs> I was yeah. like, well, see, you know, then at least. <laughs> and uh, Riker's yeah. like, oh, keep on doing it, my friend. But I'm like, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> Gets a little bit tiresome after a while. Move to the next section of this analysis, which is the Gene's vision section. Uh, mm. I noted a few things I thought that fit into the kind of Trek ideology, but I'm curious if you did, or if you'd want me to just go over and see if you agree or disagree. Or... I think you you were probably watching it with that in mind, really. A little, um... but I also just I picked out notes that I'd made that I thought was like that's one thing, but put them in one section as well. So um, I'll just go ahead and say I thought yeah. that um, the initial idea that Picard got the source at the safety and then surrendered was a very sort of Trek to me kind of idea. Like he didn't go in guns blazing and he, uh, you know, but he, but he ensured the civilians were safe before even surrendering it was really yes. cool. Um, I've mentioned already the McCoy scene kind of fits into the Star Trek lineage really well. Uh, I love the line of um, we're going to carry on doing our job because if we're to be damned, let's be damned for what we really are. Again, that's very, very Trek. Um, yes. yeah. Data's quest to be human, which again, we'll go into in detail because that happens throughout the show. But I think again, that's such a, a a brilliantly Star Trek idea of the outsider that wants to be more human and accepted and immediately the first hints of prejudice because he even says to Riker, uh, yes, prejudice is very human, you know. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, related to what you said when this, he's getting fired on, at least the medical team are ready to immediately help because at first I was like, there's casualties down there. What's going on? And then Q calls it out like two minutes later and Picard points out that he doesn't even have to tell her. Chris is like preparing med teams. Like, that's fine. Cool. Um, other dialogue I noticed... Um, I can't remember who it's with, but somebody's talking to Picard uh, and Picard says, I'll attend to my duty. And I think it's Riker says, till the bitter end. And I just, Picard's response is just gorgeous. I see nothing so bitter about that. <laughs> Again, that's very Star Trek, isn't it, really? Mm. Um, yeah, sticking up for the uniform and the mission and uh, the idea of the life form overall, I think, is a very Star Trek idea because it's so outlandish and out there, but it's ultimately not an enemy. It's a friend who's being uh, mistreated that they've got to help. So that's nice. And uh, yeah. Yeah. finally, um, the last lines are just pure the summation of Star Trek for me, which is, uh, I hope all of our missions aren't like this one. I'm sure most will be much more interesting. Let's see what's out there. Engage. I was like, that's, that's it, isn't it? That sums it right up. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I cannot disagree at all. That is, that is spot on. Awesome. Uh, so, yeah, nothing else that you picked up on then apart from that? You just agree? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's does what I think Gene wanted Star Trek to do, which was to introduce thoughts and ideas to the the viewers, really. Things that you maybe see around, well, these days on the news or or out, but just out in the world that at the time would be unheard of and things like that. Uh, The the, diversity in their kids um being part of it all um, that's a good point and also just the thought-provoking nature of like where we could be headed down that dark road in this episode of like uh look at humanity's past and things that we've done that are terrible and what could happen in the future if we're not careful and 
you know, uh, we want the ideal, but we might have to go through hardship first kind of thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, you've got your, your former enemies serving with you. Yes. You've got, obviously, um, your disabled people, the visors, sort of sitting there, women in charge of security and things like that, and uh, taking cues from them and, and, and things. Yeah. And a man wearing a dress randomly. <laughs> uh, yes, a man wearing a dress. Indeed, I did Very notice old. actually. Tasha, you are wearing a dress at the end of the show. Yeah, the uh, only time she wears the uh, dress version of the uniform. Yeah, yeah. like, oh, that's her legs. <laughs> Very surprised. Oh, and that was the other line that I thought was—I I almost missed it, but I, I would have been devastated. The other line that I think is very Trek that sums everything up perfectly, and I forgot to call it out, is when uh, Yar really does lose her temper with the court and says. Uh, this court should get down on its knees to what Starfleet is and what it represents uh, because Starfleet was the ones that saved her from kind of her brutal world and everything. And uh, mm. I was like, yeah, that's really cool. I remember using that as a great summation, I think, of uh, Star Trek and Starfleet during an essay in an old media studies class back in the day. <laughs> but, uh, we'll, um, do you have a little conclusion and your uh, score rating or do you have to think of Ooh. one on the fly? Because I can go first if you want. <laughs> Um, yeah, you you know what you're saying. I'll I'll say that and think about it. I'll give you an idea. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to just one sentence thing or something. But I always have something written because mm. my brain doesn't uh, function on the fly very well. So I like to have it written out. Um, just to let you know, the rating system that I'm going to be using is um, out of five Starfleet deltas. Okay. <laughs> so it's it's a score out of five basically. But uh, yeah, so I'll get into the conclusion and give you my score. Uh, my conclusion is that it's an incredibly functional pilot that serves to brilliantly introduce the new series, ship, characters, relationships, and storylines that will continue to be important even to this day. The far point plotline on its own is the weaker half, but it pairs with and feeds into the Q humanity on trial storyline quite expertly. It's surprising how fully formed the characters are already, and there's more than enough here, in my opinion, to keep the audience watching and give them a hint of what to expect. It's not perfect. The pace does lag a little bit, and some scenes feel misplaced or unnecessary. But there's a lot that is necessary and well executed as well. There's also a sense of two stories being welded together, but both stories also perfectly examine and emphasize the Trek ideology, culminating in a hopeful, optimistic ending that seems well-suited, promising excitement and adventure to come. Uh, and so my final score for this was four Starfleet Deltas out of five. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. But don't let that sway your opinion one way or the other. No, uh, I, I certainly I wouldn't go that high. <laughs> Um, not because I don't like it. Yeah, but I was surprised. It, I, I remembered it not being as good, but on rewatching, I was like, no, there's a lot of stuff here that I have to give props for, and it was a really enjoyable yeah. thing with uh, some key things, some key building blocks that it's putting in place. So that was the reason I went a little bit higher. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I'm gonna go to no conclusion, just straight into the score. Yeah, too, uh... well, no, I'm gonna go and explain about it, but my, okay. my thoughts about it. I think, it's, but yeah, I mean, it, it is. I, you, you covered it there, and I think oh, I've, I've mentioned we've discussed the the parts of it where it, it, it's a pilot. Mm. It's a lot of raw stuff that goes on there. The characters aren't fully formed. Uh, there's a lot of things I think that would change and round off as the characters develop and the show progresses. Um, so it, in terms of what it is to what it will become, mm. it it is very very raw. Um, nice. and a bit cringeworthy at times, and that's why yeah. I'm sort of giving it that lower score. Um, I could easily be argued up to a three, quite well, you know, to sit, to sit it's on the your, fence. Uh, 
It's but, your score, but yeah, it's like, that's the thing. That, that neither one of us are wrong. I personally thought they were quite well formed, and I like the kind of the emotional impact I had from certain lines and stuff that did work yeah. for me. Like I mentioned, Yar and Picard speeches and moments like that. But you're absolutely right in that. There's also equally cringy moments like the stuff we mentioned between Picard and Crusher or um, Riker and Troy. So you're not wrong, and if it does hit you in that way, then uh, mm. yeah. So I you're think gonna. I was gonna say to someone, oh, you know, recommend watching The Next Generation, I wouldn't say skip the first episode by any means, but I'll mm. sit and watch it from the start and see where it starts to where it gets to at the end. That's the, I think I'm also more forgiving because I know how terrible I thought the next two episodes were when it gets into the show properly, because mm. yeah, The Naked Now and Code of Honor, those are rough episodes, man. <laughs> um, so comparatively, they do kind of make this look like Shakespeare, you know? But, uh, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so that was going to be your final score would be two Delta Shields out of two. Five. Yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot going on. It's very raw. Uh, it's not bad. And this, I think, is the worst episodes. Oh, there's definitely worse episodes, especially in that mm. first season and a half, two seasons. Yeah, I would say that. Like I say, Code of Honor. I don't know if we'll ever review it, but if we did, that that might be a contender for. I don't know if I can actually legitimately even give it half of a com combat delta, but it's not even subtle, really, is it? But yeah, absolutely, <laughs> yes, that one. It's a shame because yeah. Tasha gets so few stories, and that being one of them is so unfortunate because it's yeah. just, it's almost unwatchable. But yeah, I did enjoy making a point of catching her her final shot in the show. Which I remember you pointed out to me actually. It's uh, it's not the final. It's not the episode she dies. Yeah. Uh, skin of evil. It's the her final shot. You told me mm-hmm. was actually in the episode beforehand. Yep. Where they they're doing something. And I think it's it's Picard and, and Crusher walking out of a cargo bay, mm-hmm. and you see her in the background just wave. Yeah, I love that. Do yeah. look out for that audience because there is that great moment because it is her last shot, but it's the episode before Skin of Evil. Focus isn't on. Her. Yeah, you could just miss it and just see some movement because the focus is on the characters walking towards yeah. the, the, the camera. Um, yeah. It's cool though. I like it. That gives us a, a nice, easy average to work out for the podcast. So our overall score for Encounter at Farpoint would be three Starfleet Deltas out of five, which I think is a fair little rating to land on, um, to be honest. Yeah. I could have been talked up to a three, but that makes the math easy. We don't want point five yet. Like that. Well, I mean, I would, but like I said, you you thought it was a two. I thought it was a four. Yeah, we may as well yeah. meet in the middle and. Uh, yeah, I think three is a good average. Split the difference, and I think personally, maybe I went a little high, maybe you went a little low. So three average works for me as a kind of a representation of it. Yeah. So yeah, uh, just bear with me because I'm looking for the feedback that I asked for. Uh, because this is going to be the subspace communication section, which is what I'm calling our little audience interaction. Okay. Um, I didn't get many responses uh, to this, but um, I did get one or two. The first one is from at Mr. Underscore Picard. So I think we know what is going to happen, but uh, he says, I know the episode gets a lot of erg reactions, but I like it despite its awkward moments. I think it's great if you just don't take it too seriously. It also has some really great John Luke moments, but then I might just be a little biased in that particular regard. Yeah, you don't say. <laughs> the Metal Hoovian says, love it. It's a great start to a rather tough season loaded with lovable characters, and the show just keeps getting better. It was my favourite Star Trek show until watching Discovery recently. Oh. Okay. <clears throat> At Mr. Sky Totori Marie, 
maybe. Uh, it says, interesting enough to keep me watching. I had my doubts as I didn't think it could be as good as TOS, but I turned out to love it even more. For me, it was Q that kept my interest, and he stayed one of my favorite characters throughout the series. Strong agree with that. Uh, and then at iRichards10 simply says, I love every episode Q appeared in, whichever show it was. Uh, almost strong agree. There's a couple of iffy ones. Mm. At Camos Mills has literally given a three-word review. I love it. There you <laughs> go. Um, at Mr. Underscore G Ward says, I liked it. It felt like the original series at this stage, which was important to establish itself back then. The two-part mm. nature allowed a full story on top of meeting the new crew and set the tone for Picard and the era. Q was maddening but compelling, and I still enjoy it now. Uh, at Trundles just says, this, of course, was before the introduction of the main protagonist, Riker's beard. Uh, and then <laughs> Mr. G. Ward chimes back in to simply say, counterpointed in DS9 by Cisco's beard. So there you go. <laughs> Weird conversation in my comments here. Um, that's, that's a classic real Riker manoeuvre of taking the stance. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, at I Richards 10 climbs in, uh, chimes in with her own review and just says, it was okay. Delancey was the star, though. Hoopy, muddle-aged variant. Time Lord responds, Delancey's just brilliant. Great actor. Good in the episodes of Stargate SG-1 he was in. Uh, so, there we go. Uh, at Michael Sheehan says, I did the pilot encounter at Farpoint, and the very first time we see the Enterprise D source of separation take place. So, yeah, here we go. And finally, at DWSG01 says... Not keen in 1987 when I saw it first. Now I've warmed to it, but it still has flaws. Patrick Stewart is still great, though. So, yeah, I think it's overall, I think, tempered uh, liking but not loving. I think that's probably the fairest yeah. way we could put it. I, I think that three is, is a yeah. good deal. Three deltas is a good representation from that. I agree, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it seems fair. So that's a good uh, first episode in the books and a good uh, first review, I think, which came out kind of fair. So... Uh, just remains for me to sign off and say thank you so much, old friend, for joining me. Uh, old man, I should say, <laughs> in the uh, Cisco Dax style. It was nice to uh, catch up with you and just talk anyway. It's been far too long. Um, but uh, anytime you want to talk, track, you know where I am, <laughs> or just anything Absolutely. in general. Uh, you can catch me at Iron Mike Wilson on Twitter or ideally the podcast itself at Hom Trek. That's H-O-M Trek. It stands for hit or miss, but it could also be Mr. Hom from Trek, I realized. So you never know. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Did you have any uh, sort of social media handles or anything you want to shout out for people? Or? No, I'm not that social. God. <laughs> Fair enough. But I'll just let you all know, audience, that uh, next time. I am being joined by the amazing Linda Butler, who is fantastic on Star Trek Twitter. Uh, a lovely Irish lady. She's fantastic and sweet. And she's agreed to come on. And we are going to review the Star Trek Lower Decks Season 1 finale, No Small Parts. So that should be an interesting episode. Uh, so stay tuned next week for that one. Um, and yeah, thanks again, Brownie, for joining me. Keep watching Star Trek. Till next time, listener. Uh, remember, we are Starfleet. Live long and prosper.